What's going on, guys? Welcome to Looking Ahead to Beto Days. I am Chris here with my kick-ass co-host, Ryan, uh, bringing you a fully packed show today. But first, uh, Ryan, how are you doing? Uh, doing great. I'm doing great. Living that uh, pandemic life right now, enjoying the lockdown, and uh, really excited about our show today. We got a great guest today, so let's not waste any time. Uh, retired Colonel Mo Davis. Uh, Mr. Davis, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. So, uh, so people may not be aware, uh, you are a congressional, uh, congressional candidate for North Carolina's 11th Congressional District. Um, why don't we just start and just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, who you are, and why you decided to run. Sure. Yeah, well, thanks. I uh, was born and raised and educated here in North Carolina. I grew up in a small town called Shelby down in Cleveland County. Uh, where I grew up, my dad uh, was a 100% disabled veteran of World War II. Uh, he left here, left North Carolina to help the young man. He came back 100% disabled. And uh, he was in an accident, a training accident, where a truck flipped over and everybody was thrown clear out of the back except him. The truck landed on his back and broke his back. Um, so when I was a kid growing up, my dad had you know back brace and leg braces and a car with hand controls and all that. But... Uh, you know, I never heard him complain about uh, you know, leaving here healthy and coming back disabled. He was the commander of the American Legion post in my hometown, which is about an hour from here. I'm in Asheville, but uh, my earliest memories, I'm 61. I can remember like 55, 56 years ago, my dad saying, you know, hop in the car. I'm going to the VA hospital up in Asheville, which is ironic because now I live about a mile from that same hospital and uh, that's where I go to get my help. Here. But I grew up here, went to Appalachian State University, North Carolina Central mm -hmm. uh, Law School. And then at uh, the age of 25, I joined the Air Force thinking I'd do four years and, and come back home. And uh, <laughs> 36 it never years, works out that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 30, 36 years later, I made it back. But uh, it was an interesting, uh, interesting career. I, I guess I'm best known for having served as chief prosecutor for the terrorism trials down at Guantanamo Bay. And I ended up resigning. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, no, I, I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I was reading your background. I realized, because I, I, the name, I kind of had the name in the back of my head, and then I saw, I was like, oh, yeah. wow, that's the same person. I'd love to just talk to you, like, let, your experience with Guantanamo Bay, uh, you know, what that meant for you personally, but, you know, just not only personally, but, you know, I guess in some ways, even politically, because right. of the very political nature of, of that position. So I'd just love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, sure. It was a, uh, you know, I, I took over in uh, September of 2005. I was the third chief prosecutor. Um, and it was a great team. I had a really good group of folks that worked for me. You know, for an attorney, I can't say it's a once in a lifetime opportunity because most attorneys go a lifetime and never have that opportunity. So it was a really unique experience. And uh, when I came into the job, you know, like I said, I was the third chief prosecutor. There were concerns about the, my predecessor, and uh, some of the folks on the prosecution team thought he was pushing them to do things that they felt were over the ethical uh, line. So when I came in, there was concern about what's the new guy? What's his policy going to be? Mm -hmm. So first meeting I had with him, I told him, you know, like I said, I'm 61. I can remember uh, 
you know, my generation, we grew up looking back at, at Nuremberg with kind of a sense of reverence that you know, after World War II, we didn't take the Nazis out and line them up and shoot them. We had trials and some were convicted and some were acquitted and some were executed. But, you know, we looked at it as with some pride that, uh, you know, we, we did it right. We didn't, uh, you know, we didn't stoop to their level. So I told the team at that first meeting that I wanted us to do Guantanamo in a way that our grandkids would look back at Guantanamo the way we look back at Nuremberg. They'd say, hey, you know, they had, you know, after being attacked, you know, rather than vengeance, they, uh, they did it right and they made us proud. So yeah. I told them we weren't going to use evidence obtained by torture. And for two years, that was the policy until people above me retired and were replaced by political appointees who said, President Bush said, we don't torture, who are you to say we do? And when it became apparent that uh, I wasn't gonna be able to prevent uh, the use of tortured evidence, that's when I submitted my resignation from that job. So uh, mm -hmm. it was an interesting time, interesting two years. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately- It was definitely, definitely interesting yeah. time. And I just wanna thank you personally for that. Um, you know, I, I don't bring it up often on the show, but uh, I was in the Pentagon for 9-11. So I'm actually a survivor of 9-11. Yeah. And, and what you talked about with Nuremberg about doing it right, doing it without going through torture, doing it, you know, showing America what America's metal, you know, showing us what America's metal is and that we can do this correctly. We don't need to stoop to that level. Um, that was very important right. to me because as a soldier at the time, you know, I want to know that I'm on the, I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm on the right side of the, yeah. of, of, of history. And I'm, I'm, you know, that my team is the good team. And, you know, yeah. when we go out there and we torture that, it just erodes that. And it erodes, you know, my morale and my spirit that I want to serve, you know, and that was, this was me as an enlisted soldier, you know, mm -hmm. that stuff that it propagates throughout not only the military, but United States as a whole, which is one of the reasons why I was really glad. Um, and I'm kind of going beyond scope here but the senate torture report came yep. out later that really you know kind of said that we don't do this as a country um unfortunately the current administration decided that that was to throw that in the bin but yep. that's another topic altogether so yeah but essentially i think I'm, I'm probably the only candidate running anywhere in the country who's endorsed by a former guantanamo detainee <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, so, I guess that's a good distinction, I guess. Right? Yeah, so Mohamed Uslahi, who is, uh, uh, wrote a book about his experience there, and Jody Foster's making a movie out of it now with uh, Benjamin Cumberbatch. But uh, Mohamed said that, you know, I was the kind of American that he thought Americans were, and that uh, he was excited to see I was running for Congress. So, uh, that's a, that's I, actually a pretty good endorsement, actually. Yeah. yeah. Hey. <laughs> Can't be I'll trade that one. One of my opponents, one of the Republicans, is endorsed by Citizens United. Uh, I'll take my endorsement over hers. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's interesting. I had never, it never had crossed my mind about um, Nuremberg and the the terrorist trials and how well America had had actually handled those Nuremberg trials. Right. Right. They could have just gone in and killed all the Nazis, but it wouldn't have been justice. Right. So mm -hmm. Rudolf right. Hess was a was part of the Nuremberg trials, but because he jumped into Ireland, I believe. Um, I can't remember if it's England or Ireland. His whole goal was to start a Irish civil war to throw the English off, by the way. Um, he's actually the last detainee of the, um, of the Tower of London. Um, but they didn't just kill him because he was a Nazi. He helped Hitler write his uh, write, uh, um, Mein Kampf 
but they treated him like a person and you know there's something to be said for that and you know as, as a historian you know i'd never made that connection specifically a, a, a third reich you know i studied the the uh jewish experience in the third reich and how we handled nazis and all that uh post-world war ii so that connection i never is is very intriguing to me i, I never even thought yeah. about like we were better then with nazis than we were you know now without yeah well, it's interesting, you know, the whole thing with Guantanamo and the military commissions were you had some, uh, you know, folks that never served in uniform that looked back at uh, the Nazi saboteurs or eight Nazi saboteurs that were captured uh, in the U.S. And mm-hmm. at the Justice Department, we used to have meetings down there. There's a room that has a little plaque outside of it said, you know, this is the site of the trial of the eight Nazi saboteurs. But those guys were captured in, in June of, of uh, 1941 and were convicted, sentenced, and executed by August. And so you had people that looked at that and said, hey, this was swift, it was severe, and it was secret, so let's do that again. (laughs) So uh, the Bush order that created the military commissions, if you look at the one Roosevelt signed, you know, when I was a law professor, that uh, it'd be called plagiarism, because it was basically they dusted off the order that Roosevelt signed and changed it. And that's basically what Bush signed. And they thought it was going to be the same, swift, severe, severe, and secret. And here we are in 2020 and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the guys are still sitting at Guantanamo and uh, still haven't been prosecuted. And unlikely to be prosecuted at this point. Unfortunately. Yeah, you know, it's uh, yeah, this could have been done in federal court years ago. I mean, I feel bad for the nine 11 victim families that uh, have been denied justice for all these years. Many of them are, are you know dying off just from the passage of time mm-hmm. and they could have had justice in federal court you know the, the one detainee that got there in the 2000 september 2006 was ahmed galani who was tried in federal court and has been convicted sentenced to life his case has been appealed all the way through the supreme court and it's over and done and the guys he got off the plane with that day are still mm-hmm. sitting down at guantanamo waiting for their day in court so we could spend all day talking yeah. about this. I mean, this is a, I, I could dig into this with you forever. But uh, the reason why I hear is that you're running for Congress. So right. uh, what made you decide to run from Congress after having this, you know, you 36 years in the military, most people just take their pension and retire. Right. <laughs> no, it's tw- 25 years. I'm not 25. I'm sorry. I thought I, yeah. I, thought I <laughs> yeah, actually, after, after I resigned, I did another year. I ended up, I was a director of the Air Force Judiciary, and then I retired in October 2008. Mm-hmm. Then I went on to, I was a senior specialist uh, in national security for the 111th Congress, and I was head of the Foreign Affairs, Defense, and Trade Division at Congressional Research Service. And then I got fired from that job because uh, after campaigning for Obama, and I was all excited he got elected, when he began to backpedal on Guantanamo, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. It was critical of his uh, handling of Guantanamo, and uh, I got called in the next day and fired for writing the op-ed. So I spent the next seven years with the help of the ACLU suing uh, the Library of Congress where I worked and uh, Hmm. fighting the Obama administration and eventually won that. But in the interim, I taught at Howard University at the law school for four years. And then more recently, I was a judge for the Department of Labor and moved down here to Asheville back home. We always planned to come back home to North Carolina. It just took a while. And so my wife and I moved down here a year ago. We're building a house that hopefully will be done by the end of this month. Um, but in September I'd finished writing brief, you know, the, the decisions I had to write to to finish up being a judge. I finished that and I thought I'd retired because I don't know if you followed politics in North Carolina, but uh, we've had 
a real problem with gerrymandering. And so where I'm sitting right now, mm -hmm. uh, was represented by Mark Meadows, uh, who, uh, uh, I live in Asheville. If you've ever been, Asheville is the coolest city in America. It's super cool. <laughs> uh, we're number we're number two in breweries per capita behind oh, Portland, wow. behind Portland <laughs> Maine, and we're working hard to catch up. That, that's a big but, selling point. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but Asheville is a very, very, I've, I've described it as the Berkeley of the Blue Ridge. If you picked up All Berkeley right. and brought it east and dropped it in the Appalachian Mountains, it would be Asheville. And so Asheville is very liberal, very progressive, very accepting, and very democratic. And so uh, what the Republicans did when they won the state legislatures, they split it down the middle and put half of Asheville in the district that Mark Meadows represented and half in the district that Patrick McHenry represents. And so uh, September of last year, I'm in that part that was gerrymandered into the McHenry district. And so I thought I, when I retired, I thought I was retired. And then in late November, the courts here, the state court, remember the U.S. Supreme Court in June of last year said that partisan gerrymandering doesn't violate the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, no, it's based on North Carolina and Maryland. And I kind of thought it was over and done until the census and the lines got redrawn. But then in November, state courts intervened and told our legislature, either you redraw the lines or we're going to do it for you. Oh. And it, it became apparent that, you know, this county and the city had to get reunited because you couldn't explain splitting it down the middle by any reason other than cheating. And so that's when I looked uh, <laughs> early De December 2nd when it became final and I looked at it and there were some great folks running on the Democratic side, but no one that I thought had the ability to compete with Mark Meadows. And, uh, you know, after I resigned from the, uh, mili my, uh, the military commissions, I was a regular commentator on MSNBC and CNN and even Fox and developed a pretty big national following. Like on Twitter, I've got about 158,000 Twitter followers. And I thought, you know, I had the ability to leverage that to be able to effectively compete against Meadows. So that's when I jumped in the race and I jumped in and Meadows jumped out. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he jumped out real and quick. So, uh, <laughs> and so now we're, uh, uh, and I, I, I did it because uh, I, don't know, I looked at it and I said, I've, I've got 25 years in uniform, I did another five years, you know, either working on the hill in a suit or, you know, in a robe on the bench. And I thought, you know, I've got 30 plus years invested in democracy. I've got too much in it to just sit back and watch it go down the drain. And if I'm not going to do it, who is? So uh, I jumped in and uh, I was really worried because the other candidates had been running for months and you know, I had weeks because we were on Super Tuesday. But we managed with a lot of help from folks around the country who donated and uh, folks around this district that uh, didn't know me from Adam to begin with, uh, worked really hard and we ended up winning the primary by a pretty handy margin. So uh, we're really excited about November. We got a real shot for the first time. I mean, with Meadows, when he was here, it was a 30 to 35 point slam dunk. I mean, it was almost a mathematical impossibility for a Democrat. It's still probably a five to 10 point Republican leaning district, but that's doable. And, uh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. yeah we're, just, we're really excited. So, yeah, um, so, your, your district is actually relatively important. I grew up in Virginia, but my entire mm -hmm. family is from Asheville. 
the, oh, the outlying areas. Uh, yeah. it's, I think my, my aunt said uh, outside near Bethel, about 45 minutes outside of Asheville. And I have always said that because my, my, I grew up in a family that was extremely hyper Republican. Um, I mean, my family way back 100 years ago were white supremacists, all of this stuff. So it was really important to me, and it's kind of hit home as we were doing our research, that I wanted to come and help and do good, because that's what I've said this entire time. So this is, for me, kind of like a natural natural starting point, right? Go back to where my family's from, help flip, you know, flip the district, and do something ab- ab- about it. Um, you know, I grew up going down there. Uh, I love Asheville. Yeah, um, we used to go to Biltmore all the time. Um, it's my grandmother's favorite place. They have a they have a house down there. So old family house. Um, yeah. But like I said, uh, my my whole goal with even starting this podcast has been to make a difference and to right the wrongs of my history. And it, I, it, this gave me a little bit of a sense of of, of pride. And I don't I'm not going to speak to your district because like I said, I'm still an outsider. Um, tell us about your district. You told us about how awesome yeah. Asheville is. Um, but outside of just the Asheville area, I know there's lots of small towns, like the, my, the town that my great grandparents lived in, or excuse me, my great, great grandparents lived in had two people, two families. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really an interesting district. It's all the Blue Ridge mountains. You know, I, I guess I took it for granted growing up around here that the whole world was just like this. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I learned in the military, getting to travel, you know, see the world that, that made me appreciate you know, how great this place is and how beautiful it is. And so that's why I always just, you know, was itching to get back here. But, you know, Asheville, if you've been here, it's just, just a great city, great restaurants, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, breweries, Biltmore State, uh, the French Broad River. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the only river on the East Coast that flows north. Um, but just a oh, wonderful yes. place. But if you go outside of Asheville, uh, you know, 10 miles in any direction and you've got Confederate flags and, Trump stickers and uh, mm-hmm. it's a whole different, uh, whole different, different area. Yeah. So it's an interesting place to run for office because in Asheville there, I could not be liberal enough. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm like, you know, a hundred yards left of Bernie Sanders would be perfectly fine in Asheville, <laughs> <laughs> but you go 10 miles in either direction and uh, you know, that doesn't, doesn't play well. Sure. And so trying to thread the needle because you can't win on just uh, just Asheville and Buncombe County. You've got to have some of those votes from the other rural counties where folks aren't as progressive. Okay. And so that's what I, yeah, so that's what I've tried to do is kind of carve out a, a, you know, I don't want to run on something that I don't believe in. And so like in the primary, uh, you know, I said that, uh, you know, I, I people that they run in the primary and they say one thing and then they do the pivot you know, to mm. do something different to try to win the general election. I said, that's just not right. I want to tell you what I believe in, and I want to run on policies that, you know, I can support, sure. you know, without the, and so that's what I tried to do. And I think I've done, you know, on, on issues, you know, I've found like, I guess a lot of folks have, that they're, they're litmus test issues. And clearly here, you know, guns and abortion are those issues where mm-hmm. you either have the right answer or the wrong answer. There's no, shades of gray there's no in between no yeah so i've I've tried to i've tried to carve out and i've tried to you know i think the positions i've taken a lot of issues don't make either side particularly happy and that's probably where we need to be because it's going to take uh we got to have a majority to win sure absolutely but but the good thing about it is is that you know i think despite what we see online and what we see in the tv americans are a lot 
closer together on a lot of issues and yeah. you know so and i'd love to talk about some of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, some of your platform um specifically the one that stood out to me was veterans affairs um yes. issues that that's something that's actually personal to me especially when you start talking about suicide suicide prevention and more critically to me just um getting soldiers and sailors the help they need. Uh, That's something we've talked about on the show before, which is, you know, a lot of people, uh, especially enlisted, are coming out of the military, and they've come from this very rigid environment where everything is pretty much spoon-fed to you. It's really hard to screw something up, you know. know, It kind of is, but when you get out, suddenly you're doing with the VA, which is this huge, sprawling bureaucracy, and it's not spoon-fed to you. You really got to try and challenge to make it work and, you know, be aggressive in your care and getting some, and it's kind of caused a challenge. It's caused a lot of issues with people falling through the cracks, um, not getting the care they need. It's not because we don't necessarily have a desire to provide the care, but we just don't seem to have an effective way to get it to the people who need it. Um, and so that's something that really stood out to me. So I'd love to hear you know, what, you would, what you intend to try and do to, to address that challenge with veterans. Right. Yeah, well, we're very fortunate here in Asheville. Like I said, my dad used to come here 55, 60 mm-hmm. years ago, you know, for his medical care. And that's where I go now. And uh, we're fortunate to have one of the highest rated VA hospitals in the country uh, right here in Asheville. And I've been, I'd never used the VA. You know, I was always, I was entitled to it uh, you know, since I retired in 2008. But uh, when I was working up in, uh, lived in Northern Virginia and working in DC, it just wasn't there wasn't a convenient VA hospital to get to, so I didn't use it till I moved here. But they've taken great care of me, and uh, so that's one thing that uh, you know on the back of my car I've got the you know save the VA sticker on the back of my car because veterans kept their commitment to the country, and the country owes it to them to keep their commitment to the veterans. So you know the Republicans uh, they want to privatize and profitize everything you know, like prisons education, mm-hmm. uh, and veterans health care. So there's been this push to privatize the VA. And so that's one of the key things I'm running on is uh, keeping the VA the way it was supposed to be. And, uh, you know, people, it's funny too, because, you know, when I go to the VA, to the hospital, not now, I can't go because of COVID-19. <laughs> back, before right, COVID-19. Yeah. back in the before. Uh, like in, in, in January, I, 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 I had a hip injury. I just turned one. You know, when you get old, old age is not for sissies, I'm learning. <laughs> I, I turned and my hip popped. I had a hip problem for a while. But I, I'd gone to the VA uh, and my wife, you know, I was sitting in the lobby. My wife had gone to get the car to pull up to the front because I was walking to the cane. And as I was sitting there, you know, if you look around the lobby, uh, I would say, you know, half the guys have a MAGA cap and a Trump sticker. And I've never been able to square that circle on how you can be a veteran and support mm-hmm. the most immoral, incompetent and uh, corrupt president in American history. But there are two older guys sitting there in their Vietnam vet caps. And I instantly drew an assumption about them that uh, they were, you know, had drank the Kool-Aid and were hopeless. But as I'm sitting there, the one guy tells he was talking to the other one. He said, you know, we got to get Trump reelected. He you know, got to get four more years. He's doing great things for veterans and for the economy. And the other guy looked at him and you know, I was expecting him to say, yeah, you're right. But said, he said, 
somebody fed you a line of bullshit. <laughs> so we were, we were better off under Obama. Trump's pitted us against each other. And so anyway, I had to get up and leave. But there are two things I took away from that. Number one is I shouldn't assume based on appearances mm-hmm. what a person's beliefs are, because I had written them both off. And number two, you know, the guy that was the Trump supporter, I don't know if he, I, I doubt the other guy sold him on the, you know, but he was nodding along and listening to facts because it was one of his peers talking to him. So there's 65,000 veterans in this district. And I'd say the vast majority believe in the VA and I'm one of them. So like, you know, my opponents on the Republican side, neither one of them ever served a day in the military. So when I go out to the VFW and, Takasiji, I'm one of those guys. You know, when I go to the DAV, I'm a member. So I can get in the door and hopefully uh, we've got to win some of those people over to win this election. And I think I've got the ability to do that because I am one of those guys. And so we're going to fight hard to keep the VA as it is and stop this effort to find the profit margin in uh, every aspect of life. There's some things that are fundamental. Uh, uh, inherent government responsibilities like prisons. And uh, I think VA healthcare falls in that category too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, I, I heard you mention education in there, which mm-hmm. I feel I'm a teacher. Um, that is my day job. I teach. Um, and that was when I was going through all of your policies, I, that was the thing that popped out to me. Um, and sure. the one thing that really struck me was your plan for student loans. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much in the belief that you know, the student loan bubble will be the next bubble to pop because we have so much student loan debt and you know we have people who can't get jobs doing it um, right. or getting with it using their degrees. And your plan was relatively genius. Um, the idea of, you know, the, and we actually had a conversation about this last night, that um, the the government it isn't necessarily like free education; it's an investment almost. Yeah. Um, it's more macroeconomics; it's human capital. Um, how did you come up with that um, with that that plan? It's such a good plan. I'm surprised I haven't seen it um, more you know more broadly across the country. And it's, it comes from your experiences is in the military. You I read where it said you would uh, tell the uh, tell your students join the military. Yeah. Same kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks. It, uh, I'm a big believer in education, and I view it as an investment, not an expense. And again, it's another area where the other side wants to privatize and profitize education. Um, and I can tell you, like my, my two opponents on the other side, I, I went through uh, first grade through high school in Shelby in the public schools. I went to Appalachian State for four years for my undergraduate degree, which is a public, you know, part of the UNC public uh, university system. And then I spent three years at North Carolina Central, which is also part of that system in law school. So I've got 19 years in the public school system here in North Carolina, where my two opponents, one was homeschooled and the other, uh, she was born and raised in New Hampshire and then moved down here. So I'm the only candidate running who actually has experience in uh, the public school system. But again, I think it's, it's foolish to not view this as an investment because giving those, you know, our kids the background and the ability to uh, be full up members of society and that new frontier that's ahead of us, that's what's going to 
you know, this part of our, our future is tied to their future. So I view it as an investment. And I saw, like you, you mentioned, I, I was a professor at, at Howard University at the law school. And I had a number of students. There were several that I helped uh, get into the JAG Corps. You know, some, you know, I was in the Air Force. So I tend to, you know, to me is the better branch. I tried to push them that way. But some went, Go Army. <laughs> some went to the Army, some went to the Navy, and I don't fault them for that. But, but uh but I helped, I don't know, you know, quite a few of my students that wanted to serve in the military and wanted to go make the JAG Corps a career, I was able to help them do that. But I had a number of others that came to talk to me about it, either joining the JAG Corps or some other form of public service, you know, the Peace Corps or, you know, some other uh, form of public service. And they weren't able to do it because they had so much debt, student loan debt, that they were forced not to do what they were passionate about, but to do what was going to give them the biggest paycheck so they could afford to pay back their student loans. So I look at it and it's, to me, it's a, a, a drag on our economy because you have a lot of young people that they're deferring getting married, they're deferring having families, deferring buying houses, deferring doing what they were passionate about because they're saddled with so much debt. So I know during the primary, I met a young lady who was saying that all she could afford to pay was the interest, not the principal. And 100%. so she said, I don't think I'll ever live long enough to pay off my, the debt. All I can afford to do to keep my head above water is pay off, you know, pay the interest every month and kick the can down the road. Uh, I met another young man or not young. He was probably in his thirties uh, during the primary who uh, went to Appalachian state like I did and stayed and got a master's in education and was a school teacher, but he quit and got a job in a factory because it paid more and had better you know, benefits than being a teacher in North Carolina. Absolutely. And, yeah. And so he had a job working in a factory that didn't even require a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. And here's a guy with a master's degree who wasn't doing what he was passionate about, which was teaching. He had to quit that job to, you know, to feed his family and take care of them. So, you know, the Bernie, I think it was Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren had the plan to totally forgive student loan debt. I think it's $1.6 trillion, which a few months ago seemed like a huge sum of money, just that, you know, one you choke on. But, you know, as we've seen during COVID-19, a trillion here, a trillion there, it's, you know, <laughs> No big deal. It's, it's, it's doable. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's like, I, I was like, in, uh, in between April the 8th and May the 7th, which is a 30-day period, we added over a trillion dollars to the national debt, mm -hmm. which, you know, in part because of COVID-19. So 1.6 trillion is a huge number, but it's doable. But on one hand, I, you know, I've known people that, you know, when I was in college, I had a you know, I worked to help, you know, uh, support myself. And I knew other people that worked two jobs, you know, while going to school so that they didn't, weren't saddled with a bunch of debt. So to totally excuse $1.6 trillion in debt to me was kind of a poke in the eye to folks that had, you know, really busted their butt to, you know, avoid having the debt. But on the other hand, it is a drag on the economy. And like my students, some of them is, you know, you know, wasn't through, you know, weren't lazy. It was, you know, the, they just accumulated all this debt. So I, to me, a middle ground was uh, for the government to buy that debt from private, because uh, right now it's through private lenders. So the government buys the debt, it becomes a government debt that students or, or people pay back at zero interest. Mm -hmm. And yeah. with an option, with an option 
to where you can also pay it back through some form of public service. So like the military or being a teacher or the Peace Corps, you could pay down, pay off your debt by, by public service. And to me, that kind of struck a reasonable middle ground to where, you know, the people that did work hard, it's not really a poke in the eye to them. But for folks that are saddled with debt, it lifts a lot of that burden off of them and makes it manageable. Um, so I, to me, it seemed like a sensible plan. So I, I'm a big believer in education. And I don't know if you followed here in North Carolina, our teachers here are, uh, I don't know, grossly underpaid. They're not paid like the professionals that they ought to be. And my Absolutely. Hats, I was really happy to get, I was real pleased you know, back to the VA. I'm, I'm happy to be endorsed by vote vets. I'm also happy to be endorsed by the North Carolina Association of Educators. Because, uh, awesome. Like I said, I'm the only one running for this seat that has any experience with public education. In fact, uh, the lady that Mark Meadows is, uh, is endorsed uh, said that uh, our public schools are liberal indoctrination centers. Oh, Lord. So, uh, Lord. Yeah, so, you know, she's a big believer <laughs> in church schools and home schools. And, uh, it, you know, there's no substitute a, for public education. Um, and part, I'm going to touch on a couple of things that, that you had mentioned. You know, one, teachers are grossly underpaid. Like we're literally the foundation for what America is going to become. Without us, there is no America, right? We very quickly descend into idiocracy um, because people don't know. And you can see what happens when you have poor, uh, poor education. You know, people are more apt to buy into bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. You can tell me anything if I don't know any better. And so that's why teachers are so important. That's, that's actually, um, I have it written down on my piece of paper to talk to you about teacher pay and, you know, different ways we can, we can fix that because teachers are also not, um, you know, we, when you hear people, they talk about first responders, they talk about nurses, they talk about everything. Um, but teachers kind of always get left out. And, you know, and I'm not saying that those guys aren't important. Like all of that is super, super important, but you can't highlight one and leave the rest of us out kind of in the dark. You know, I, I work Monday through Friday, busting my butt to make sure kids are educated. V having to adjust on the fly to make sure my kids are taken care of and we're not compensated the way that we should. And nobody, and you, you don't hear as much argument. It's not as loud to make sure teachers are compensated. You know, I don't, mm -hmm. I'm buried in student loan debt to become a teacher. I will never stop teaching because that is what I do. But you, we lose a lot of good teachers to yeah. lack of pay. So how do, how, how, how do we go about fixing that? Yeah, I think I, I agree. And I've got uh, you know, members of my family that uh, you know, were career educators here in North Carolina. It was, I mean, I, to me, being a, being a teacher is like serving in the military. It's something you don't do it to get rich. You no. do it because you believe right. you're doing something that matters. Exactly. You are. And I hope COVID-19 has impressed upon a lot of people <laughs> whose kids are at home and you know, they're having to try to uh, be substitute teachers. I think I've seen a number of folks in social media that have said they've got uh, newfound respect for, for teachers because when they've had to take on that role, they found it to be a, a really daunting task. So, you know, education is primarily a state and a local issue. So, what I, what I, you know, particularly like running for Congress, I think there are a couple things that from the federal level that uh, we can do that would help on the state and local level. I tell you, one of the problems we've got here, let me back up just a bit, in this district, you know, we're the western part of North Carolina. There's an article in, towards the end of last year that said that the rural schools, that uh, the kids in the rural schools in the state 
rank in the bottom third of the country in math and reading. Uh, when I grew up in North Carolina, we were a proud, progressive, forward-leaning state back in the, in the 60s and 70s when I was in school. And, you know, we, we had Research Triangle Park before anybody ever heard of Silicon Valley. So North Carolina at one point was kind of a model, the envy of the South. And then for the last decade or so, we've had folks want to roll back the clock and uh, take us in a different direction. So I, I want to get us back to being that proud progressive state that we used to be where our education system was a great system. So uh, the two things I think we can do from the federal level to help. Well, let me back up again. I keep jumping around here. The kids in those rural schools, the average uh, public uh, uh, funding for students, the average in North Carolina is about $1,600 per student. Now, there are areas like Research Triangle, uh, Hillsborough, uh, Durham, down in that area, where it's, 10, or it's over $10,000 per student. So that's in a, in a very, uh, you know, a wealthy area where they can afford to put a bigger investment into their school systems. We have systems here in uh, the western part of this district where the average is about $400 per student. So it's one-fourth of the state average and a fraction of what you know, the elite, uh, more you know, wealthy counties are investing in their students. So Title I funding yeah. is, you know, Title I is funding that uh, helps uh, uh, areas of high poverty to help bring them up to closer to par. So it's one of those areas, again, there's a lot of talk about it, but not a lot of effort to actually beef it up. So I think from the federal level, we could, I, I would like to fight to get greater Title I funding to help those uh, areas of high poverty to bring them up closer to, uh, to the norm on funding. Another thing I think we can do from the federal level, there seems to be bipartisan or nonpartisan support for infrastructure spending. And uh, I would like to see that targeted on areas of high poverty and specifically on education. So to build schools, to maintain schools. And one of the important things out here is to bring broadband. Uh, a lot of the urban areas you know, during this COVID-19 crisis, uh, kids have been able to do online, some online learning. I was talking to uh, some teachers in this district and they said, you know, when their kids got sent home, they gave them, they were given Chromebooks to take home with them, which that's great. But if you live in one of the counties in this district where the broadband access rate is 50%, you know, that Chromebook is a big paperweight if you can't get on the internet. Exactly. So, uh, you know, the national average, about 90, 92% of Americans have broadband access. North Carolina is 94%, but uh, we have counties in this district where the broadband access rate is 50 to 60%. So I would like to see a, a bigger investment, an infrastructure investment in bringing broadband. And we can go off on a whole conversation on broadband because that impacts not just education, but uh, employment, uh, health care a number of things tie into the broadband issue as well. But those are a couple of things I think uh, I could do from the federal level to try to help uh, enhance education in, in this district. Well, I, I mean, all of that stuff is, is, is national too. It's not, it, it, that, that goes outside of the, um, would even go outside of your district to help um, teachers nationwide. I think we dropped Ryan, which is totally just fine. He'll hop back in. All right. We got Ryan back. We can, 
totally totally wrap this out and I'll, I'll end <laughs> our, our our side conversation there. Um, we're just talking about broadband. We got we got to do some broadband access. So I actually live on an island um, in the middle of the Gulf. So unfortunately, there's only one pipe in and out. <laughs> so I I have limited options. That's funny. Normally, I don't edit out stuff. I just leave it in there because the whole amateur thing. But I'll edit all this stuff out. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. So let's go ahead and, and dive into some um, current events because you oh, know yeah. we're all trapped in our houses and there's life still going on. And unfortunately, our government has done a fantastic job of just fucking that all up. Um, and now everything's Obama's fault. So <laughs> but before we get into that, um, I know Ryan wanted to talk to you about Captain Crozier. Crozier? Yeah, so I'm very curious because, um, you know, for people who don't know, you're, you're a colonel, he was a captain, that's the same rank, uh, believe it or not, it's the Navy, right. Navy it's the Air Force. so uh, basically, um, you know, talking about one of your peers, and it was always struck me, um, you know, personally, I very firmly believe in what Captain Cozier did, I think it took a lot of bravery, he sacrificed his career, and he knew he was sacrificing his career when he wrote that letter, Um now the you know and him getting fired isn't entirely surprising what was surprising to me was the way it went about happening with uh secretary of the navy uh thomas moldy basically flying out there and going on and basically trashing the former commander to all his soldiers so i'd really like to get your perspective especially as someone who's been in mm -hmm. that position uh, of that rank and so kind of get your perspective as far as the military leadership that was demonstrated and who do you think ultimately demonstrated the best leadership abilities in that regard yeah well i think you know the the clear indicator <laughs> is you saw when he left the ship all the sailors that uh, came okay. out and were that was a testament uh, to his leadership that uh, they knew that their captain took care of them and put them ahead of his own interest. And that's, uh, that's what leaders do. So I was really proud of, uh, I mean, I think, you know, on a, on a, you know, his was on a much bigger scale. It's kind of like, you know, this decision I faced on torture. I had a group of, uh, you know, I was the chief prosecutors. All the folks under me were junior to me. Many of them, uh, you know, had families and were midway through their careers. And, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those situations if I wasn't going to stand up and, and throw the bullshit flag on torture, who was? Mm -hmm. And it's, and I looked at it too. It's like, you know, what are they going to do to me? I'm a Colonel, you know, get being forced to retire as a Colonel is not the worst thing <laughs> in the world to happen to you. But, uh, you know, it was, un, you know, if I wasn't going to do it, who was? And I think Captain Crozier is in the same thing. We're looking out for his troops. If he wasn't going to, raise the flag and say, hey, we've got to do something about this. Who was? And so he did. And I, again, I think the reaction of his uh, troops, uh, his sailors, you know, speaks volumes about what they thought about, uh, you know, his character and his leadership. And contrast that with, like I know this morning on Twitter, uh, Trump's on a, has Twitteria again. And uh, <laughs> days in a row. <laughs> yeah, but he had one this morning where he was talking about the governors and about how they ought to be, you know, uh, they're getting all the credit for doing a great job, but it was really him and his efforts and, you know, leaders don't do that. You know, Donald Trump has never taken responsibility for anything in his life. Every He's always, you know, it's Obama's fault, it's Hillary's fault, it's, you know, it's China's fault, it's everybody's fault but him. What I found, you know, leaders take responsibility for their actions. Mm -hmm. And 
one thing I found is as a leader, you get you make sure the people that did the work get the credit when things go right. And you don't throw them under the bus when things go wrong. You know, unless it, you know, my, my policy was if somebody screwed, now I expect you to screw up. If you're not screwing up, you're not trying. But if it's an honest mistake, then you don't throw them under the bus for it. Now they repeat it and keep making it. It's a different story. But, you know, Trump is the, you know, the, the counter argument of, for leadership. I mean, he is everything leaders are not. So Crozier was a, <laughs> was a prime example of what leadership looks like. It's putting you know, the good of your organization and the folks that you're responsible for ahead of yourself. And I would love to see, and I'm drawing a blank on the current Secretary of the Navy, who uh, I actually, I know, because he was the Judge Advocate General of the Navy when I was the Chief Prosecutor. And I used to meet with the TJAGs on a regular basis and brief them on what we were doing with the military, because they were opposed. You know, the, as I said, the civilian leadership were the ones that pushed torture in Guantanamo and military commissions. The uniformed folks were routinely against it. So, uh, uh, again, I'm drawing a blank, but I can tell you that. Uh, Richard Spencer, I believe. Is that right? I don't think it's Spencer. It's, uh, God, I don't know what I think. They've changed but, um, different positions so many times, it's hard yeah. to keep track of them. Well, the, the current acting secretary is the former Judge Advocate General of the Navy. And I can tell you that back in 2006, 2007, he was on the, yeah, McPherson, thank you. He was on the right side of the torture issue and was, was willing to push back against the Bush administration on torture. So I'd love to see him step up here and do the right thing and put Crozier back on the ship. Can you imagine the reaction of the sailors? So Crozier has since been reinstated, I believe. I, I remember but, reading that recently. Well, I think they, they held up. That was the recommendation of the chief of staff of the Navy, the uniform side. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think they, on the, on the civilian side, the Secretary of Defense and the civilian Trump-appointed leadership said we need to have further investigation. Yeah, no, that's, that's, they, they, they made the recommendation. They have not put him back on the ship and I'm, right. I'm with you. I would love to see the, the, his, his, the reaction from his men when he steps foot back on that ship. He's created such a good, it's created such a dichotomy and like a good, I guess a, not a dichotomy, but like a, a, a parallel between what Trump is and what leadership is. And I think yep. you summed that up very, very nicely. And that definitely, um, is going to be what echoes from the pandemic in general is how leadership failed all of us. And after November, cause we're, we're still going to be dealing with this for years. You know, what do, what do we do next with the pandemic? When we bring in a new Congress, how do we get America actually back on its feet without saying we're doing a tremendous job. Everybody's the best job. How, how, do, how do we move forward? How does our leadership move forward rather and, and fix the damage. Yeah, it's going to take this one thing. I, I won't live long enough to see us undo the damage we've done in uh, foreign affairs, for example, because mm -hmm. like I spent most of my career, adult life in national security matters, you know, either in uniform or uh, working for government and the damage we've done, you know, will take decades to repair, like abandoning the Kurds. <laughs> and after they fought and oh, died God. for us in Syria, uh, against ISIS, you know, why would anybody ever trust us again? You know, attacking NATO and constantly undermining NATO and siding with the, you know, Putin and Kim Jong-un, and it's going to take decades to restore the damage that we've done over the last 
few years, but we've got to start. And that's one thing I'd like, I want to be a part of is, uh, I don't, you know, I think I've, I've said throughout the primary, I'm not looking, this for me is not a springboard to another job or uh, something where I want to go there and home. It used to bother me when I worked for Congress, you had some members had been there so long that people literally had to pick them up by the elbow and, and get them to their seat. Yeah, Strom Thurmond was there forever. Dude ran for president mm -hmm. in 1948, was in Congress when he died in like 2003. Yeah, I don't, I'm not doing that. I want, I want to be there for a couple of terms, get us back on an even keel and in the right direction. And then I am perfectly happy to come back here, sit on my porch and drink beer and enjoy Asheville. But, uh, Absolutely. but so for me, this, it's not a stepping stone. Well, we got to start the process. And part of that process is restoring integrity and accountability. You know, Congress is supposed to be a co-equal branch and a check and balance. It's interesting, I guess, as we're talking right now, the Supreme Court's hearing oral argument on the uh, whether Trump has to comply with the uh, congressional subpoenas. Mm -hmm. Congress has advocated its responsibility to be a check on uh, uh, the executive branch, and particularly the Senate. I mean, you know, Mitt Romney was the one Republican that actually had the integrity to do the right thing. And uh, uh, we, we've got to, We've got to start by, uh, you know, that's what I, you know, people have asked, what's the most important issue? And often, you know, we talk about healthcare and education and the environment and jobs and all that. To me, the most important issue is restoring integrity and accountability because people ought to be able to believe that their government is there acting in their best interest. And right now, you know, the other side of the propaganda and Fox News and, you know, all that has just so eroded trust in government. I can tell you, and I, like I said, I retired in September of last year from the Department of Labor and used to being a government employee was a, an honorable career you know, that you could be proud of. You, again, you weren't going to get rich doing it, but you felt like you were doing something that, that mattered. And Trump is so vilified and demoralized uh, federal employees that uh, you know, we've got to reverse that. So that's why I'm running and why I think it's important to... Uh, uh, to start a new chapter, we can't continue. I, I'm afraid four more years of Trump, we won't have a country left. Oh, I agree. I've been saying the same thing. I don't, I, I don't see us sur surviving another four years. And that's why um, we can start by bringing integrity back to our country in November. We can all get out and vote any, by any means possible. If, there, if we can't vote by mail, crawl whatever it takes over broken glass through the gates of hell, get to a polling <laughs> yeah. station. We all have to be there to make a change, to bring back integrity to this country. Colonel Davis, thank you so much. Thank for you so much today. for coming on. Appreciate I've it. learned just, an, um, you've been a fantastic guest. I, I've learned mm -hmm. so much just from sitting here, talk to, talking to you. Um, you're welcome back anytime, anytime you want to come hang out. You're more than welcome. Um, well, you guys have to come to Asheville. Like oh, I said, when this is over, come back. Uh, we'll we'll try to hit as many of the breweries as we can. And uh, I'm you know the motto the motto down. here is <laughs> I think here is the motto here is keep Asheville weird. And I'm oh, committed awesome to doing my part. <laughs> I'm committed to doing my part. All right, all right, <laughs> all right, all right, guys. Let's uh, keep on staying home. Let's keep on staying safe, and let's keep on looking ahead to better days. Mm -hmm.